It is said that when President Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, that his greeting to her was, so you're the little woman who wrote the book that started this great war. Uh, That statement was probably never made. And if it was, I don't know how it lands on you. Perhaps it sounds misogynistic. You're the little woman who wrote this book. But I actually imagine President Lincoln saying it with a twinkle in his eye of admiration. You're, you're the little woman who wrote the book that changed the world. Whether you think the statement was ever made or what, however it lands on you, the point of it is clear that there are books, there are written things, words written together that have changed the course of history that have changed the shape of the world. And this tiny little book in the New Testament called Galatians is one of those books. Uh, This morning, we're beginning a sermon series in Galatians, which we'll be in for the next several months. And this is a book that has changed the course not only of individual lives, not only of churches, but of nations and of world history. Galatians is a book about the gospel. Now, that's a word that Christians use Uh, that sometimes we probably presume presume that everybody understands. Uh, But it's a word that means simply good news. And in particular, it means means good news as a form of an announcement, the announcement that something has happened, some good, great thing has happened that has changed the world. And so Christians believe a, a particular good news that has changed the world. And the author of this book, Galatians, was a man named Paul, who was an apostle. And next week, we're going to hear more about what that means and about his calling to be an apostle. But basically, it means a person who is sent as a messenger. And in particular, he was sent to bear the message that is at the heart of the book of Galatians. And as he went about on his missionary journeys as an apostle, he went into what we know today as Turkey. And he planted or started some churches in an area that was then called South Galatia. Now, if you read the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14, you can see the, or read the story of the planting of these churches in places called Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe. But not long after he planted these churches, some, some people that he identifies in Galatians as troublemakers came in, and they started this conflict in the church, and the conflict came to a head actually in Acts chapter 15, But if you go back and read Acts 13 through 15, just imagine that there's a break of a few years between 14 and 15, and that's when the book of Galatians was written. These troublemakers had come in, and Paul writes this letter to respond to them. And eventually, apparently, they don't listen, and so it gets so serious that they have to come to this council, convene this council of all the highest leaders in the church who come together in Acts 15, and they rule at that council, this is the gospel, and everything else is not the gospel. And that's Paul's goal in Galatians, to clarify for this church, this is what the gospel is and isn't. This is what the good news, the message at the heart of Christianity is and isn't, so that the people that Paul's writing to can live in the freedom and the new life that Christ has given to them. Now that matters, the, the, the clarity around what the gospel is and isn't matters because as Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power to save. It's the power to save all people, to bring all people into a relationship with God. He doesn't say in Romans 1 that the gospel is one power to save among others. He doesn't say the gospel is a power to save among many options. He doesn't even say that the gospel is the power which partially saves you if you finish it with your own efforts. He says the gospel, this message, the good news, is the power to save. And my prayer for our 
several months in Galatians, as I've prepared for this series, is that the gospel's power would be unleashed in and through our church. And if we really believe that the gospel is the power to save for all people, that we would see that power working in us and through us, that it would work in us for, for, for renewal, gospel renewal, spiritual renewal, that the, the gospel and its power would come into our hearts and our lives and would give us a new love for God and a new love for one another, a new brokenness over our sin, a new desire to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. I'm, I'm praying not only that it would bring renewal to us, but that it would bring salvation to people who aren't yet believers in Christ. I'm praying that God would, would bring people into our worship services because you invited them, because I invited them, because they saw a sign up front who, who are burdened by the weight and the, the pressure of life and of the world and of their sin, and that they would hear the message of freedom in Galatians and that it would change their lives. I'm praying that God would bring rest for weary Christians through Galatians. I'm, I'm very sensitive about ever saying anything bad about other churches or other movements uh, within Christianity. But there are some churches, even if they believe the gospel, who don't teach it, don't preach it in, in the way that it's meant to be taught and preached. And as a result, they end up telling people a lot about what they need to do rather than about what God has done in Christ. And the result is there are Christians who are exhausted and burdened and burnt out. And my prayer is that some of them would come here as we preach through Galatians, and they would feel those burdens lifted. Throughout history, revival is always preceded by renewal. The gospel gets into churches and renews God's people, and it spills out beyond the church. It always has. It's what happened when Martin Luther discovered the truth at the heart of Galatians and followed it, and it led to what we know as the Protestant Reformation, uh, which... Your short, non-nuanced overview of church history is that around the 1500s, early 1500s, Martin Luther and others felt that the Roman Catholic Church, which was basically the church in the West at that day, was oppressing and burdening people with these loads of legalistic commands that they added to the gospel. And he discovered this freeing message in the book of Galatians. And he says, basically, we taught about it, we preached about it, we wrote about it, and then the stuff just started happening. And there's this famous quote where he says... We didn't do anything. We just preached the gospel. And other than that, like me and my buddy Philip sat around and drank good German beer. And all of a sudden, this message just freed people all over Europe. It happened 200 years later when the Great Awakenings began through the ministry of, among others, John and Charles Wesley. The Wesley brothers were ministers in the Anglican church, but they weren't Christians. And oddly enough, it was upon hearing Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on Galatians read aloud that John said he felt his heart strangely warmed. He became a Christian, and the, the historical and social impact of that is immeasurable, if you know anything about the, the Wesleyan tradition. And so I'm praying, and I, I hope you'll pray with me. This is a longer and more serious introduction than than most weeks, but it's, I, I hope you just hear the earnestness with which I'm praying and hope you will pray with me that the gospel will do its work as we work through Galatians. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 this morning, if you'll turn there with me. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. 
to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we've said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I said that Galatians is a book about the gospel, so the first point of the first sermon in Galatians is the gospel. And it comes in two parts, the authority of the gospel and the content of the gospel. So first, the authority of Paul's gospel. Verse 1, Paul makes clear who his gospel is coming from. He says, I'm an apostle, which means I don't carry my own authority. I was sent by somebody else. But he says, I wasn't sent from men or by men, but from God. Uh, Paul is appealing to the highest authority imaginable for his gospel. You can, you can understand what he's doing here, right? Imagine you're at work, and you're like the sixth level down on the org chart, and somebody comes to you, but they're like two levels lower than you on the org chart, and they say, I have some instructions for you. You better listen up. You would say, well, who are you? I don't you're, you're, not, you're, you're below me on the org chart. Like your, your authority doesn't have any weight over me. And then they say, well, my message is from the CEO of the company. All of a sudden, you're going to sit up straight, and you're probably going to apologize for how disrespectful you were at first. This is what Paul's doing, but he's appealing to the highest authority imaginable. He's saying, my message has come from God. We're going to see more about that next week. That's the authority of his, his gospel. What about the content of his gospel? Verses 3 through 5 is a beautiful summary of the entire gospel story. And, and you can pull out four points from it. Now, I'm not, these points aren't in the order that Paul gives them, but I think they're in the logical order. And the first one is the gospel has something to do with the eternal will of God. Paul talks about the will of our God and Father. God planned this gospel, Paul is saying, before he laid the foundations of the earth. This gospel is not God's response to something. It's not his plan B. It's his eternal plan. His eternal plan to do what? Second point, to rescue us from the present evil age, Paul says. Now, that, that sounds like a loaded phrase. So what is the present evil age? The present evil age in the Bible is the fallen world. It's the corrupted world. It's the broken world that we all live in. It's the world under the sway of the devil. It's the world enslaved by sin and polluted with death. It's what you experience. It's what you see on the news. And it was the eternal will of God to deliver us from this world. How did he do it? This is the third point of Paul's gospel. Christ gave himself for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Now, what does that mean, and why would that, why would that solve the problem? Well, well, first, why is the present age evil? Where did all this corruption and death and brokenness come from? The Bible tells us that the world is broken and fallen because of sin. That's another religious word. What is sin? Sin is essentially turning away from God and looking for ultimate things in non-ultimate 
created things. It's turning away from God, who is the source of every good thing, the fountain of every blessing, and turning to created things and asking them to give us meaning and satisfaction and purpose and joy and life and love. And they can't do it, but we stiff arm God and we look to these other things for ultimate things. And the first human beings did this. Why? Because they didn't trust God to provide what they needed. They didn't trust that God would give them these good things. And so the first humans rejected him and they sinned. And in doing so, they plunged the human race into this present evil age. But we're not just innocent victims. We have all willingly participated and followed their example. And because of this, because we have, there must be consequences. Now, uh, I have a three-year-old in my house, and the word consequence is a, a word that is a regular part of her vocabulary now because she understands that when mom and dad tell her to do something and she doesn't do it repeatedly, or when we ask her to stop doing something and she continues to do it repeatedly, there's going to be what? There's going to be consequences. And we've talked as, as parents about the importance of like doing what we say we're going to do. It would be unjust. It would be dishonest. It would be ultimately unhelpful to her if we say, you're going to have a consequence if you do this one more time, and then we just let her off the hook, right? We have to make good on our word. That is the just thing to do, and certainly that's true of God, but the consequence of sin is not time out. It's death. Why? Because when you, when you turn away from God, who is the, the source of life, you're naturally turning to what? You're naturally turning to death. So that's, that's the consequence of our sin. And this, this puts God in what the church father Athanasius called the divine dilemma. So on the one hand, you have a God who must punish sin because that's the just thing to do. And we all, you think you don't want a God who punishes sin, but you do. Everybody wants God to be just. You want justice to be done. So he has to be just and punish sin. But on the other hand, God was unwilling for the entire human race, which he created for life, to die. God's good and loving and compassionate, and he doesn't want us to die. So what does he do? Somebody has to pay the price for sin, but he doesn't want it to be us. So God says, I will pay the price myself. And in Christ, the Son of God comes to, to humanity, and he takes on a human nature, and he lives the life that we failed to live, and he dies the death that we deserve to die. And on the cross, Jesus paid the last ounce of punishment bearing in himself the full weight of God's opposition to sin. Why? So that justice could be fully satisfied, and yet so that you and I wouldn't have to pay it. Why? Fourth part of Paul's gospel, to the glory of God. It's the last thing that he says. What is God's glory? God's glory is the manifestation and the enjoyment of his goodness and his perfection. All of this is so that we might enjoy the goodness of God. Now, just a, a quick reflection on that gospel summary. Who is the actor? Who is the actor in Galatians 1, 3 through 5? Who are all the, the action verbs ascribed to? God. At every single turn, God is the one acting. We're not doing anything. God is the subject. We are the object. God is the one acting. We are the ones who are acted upon. We contribute. This is the, the point of Paul's gospel. We contribute nothing to our salvation. God does 100% of it. The gospel of Paul, Paul's saying, is the gospel of God. He's appealing to his authority. And the gospel of God is this. God saves you, you don't save you. That's the gospel. God does it, you don't have to do it. In other words, the Christian religion is not about what you can do to be made right with God. It's not about you working hard so God will accept you or love you. 
if you're here this morning and, and you've not grown up around church or, or you, you don't know many Christians or, or maybe you do, but your, your assumption about Christianity is Christianity is basically moralism. It's about living a good life, trying to please God, trying to do the right thing so God will accept you. Or maybe, maybe you've grown up in church and you have that view because that's what you were taught. That's what was preached to you. You need to behave. You need to do this. You need to do that. And even if you are a Christian, you still probably to some degree operate as though salvation was up to you, that you need to please God. You need to, to persuade him to accept you. And let's just, let's just get this clear from the jump. That's wrong. The gospel has nothing to do with you being a good person. The gospel has nothing to do with your work, with your effort at all. It is all about what God has done in his eternal love, not what you can do to earn his love. But that message was getting twisted by some false teachers in the Galatian churches. So the second point of the sermon is, first point is the gospel, second point is the false gospel. Among the Galatian churches, there were some troublemakers who were distorting the gospel. That's what verses six and seven tell us. Uh, Paul says they were causing trouble. That, that verb to cause trouble literally means they're shaking you up. So picture like the middle school sleepover and you're putting Mentos in the Coke bottle, right? And what happens? It like gets fizzy and shakes up and explodes, right? That's the picture that Paul gives us, that there's something being injected into the life of the Galatian church that is shaking them up and troubling them. And he says these people are distorting the gospel. That word means literally they're turning it inside out. They're turning the gospel inside out. Now, if the gospel is God saves you, you don't save you, what's the inside out gospel? If you save you, God doesn't save you, or at least not fully. The gospel is God is the subject and you are the object. God is the actor, you are the one acted upon. But the inside out gospel is you are the subject and God is the object. You are the actor and God is the one who is acted upon. Now before we get to the specific content of the false gospel in Galatia, just consider God's response to these, uh, Paul's response to these false teachers. He says, let them be condemned or let them be cursed. He says, even if I come back and preach to you a different gospel, or even if an angel from heaven comes to you and tells you something different, let them be cursed. It teaches us two things. One, it teaches us the fundamental unreliability of experience. Paul's saying, the gospel that I already told you is the gospel of God, and to turn from it is to turn from him. And even if you have a, a, the most charismatic teacher in the world, even if you have the most impressive, the most entertaining, the person with the most Instagram followers, the person who grows their church faster than anybody else in the world, or he says, even if you think that you've experienced revelation from heaven, even if, you have a, if, if an angel shows up to you and tells you this is actually the gospel, he says, if it doesn't line up with God's word, don't believe it reject it. It's a false gospel. Our subjective experience is unreliable, but the word is not. Second thing this teaches us is the seriousness of false gospels. Notice how Paul just doubles down here. First, he says, if anybody, even if I come back and teach you a different gospel, let them be cursed. And then he, do, he just says, as I have said before, as I just said, in case you thought I was being a little emotional, a little over the top, or was just using hyperbole, to be clear, let me say it again. If anybody preaches a false gospel, let them be cursed. Why? Because the false teaching is itself going to condemn those who accept it. Because a gospel of salvation by works, an inside-out gospel, is a condemning gospel. Because nobody can stand up under it. 
And Paul is absolutely dead serious about the spiritual freedom and life and flourishing of these churches that he started. And you, this sounds harsh to us, let them be condemned, but you can empathize, right? I want you to imagine for a minute, okay, you're, you're, go back in, in time, you're a seven, eight-year-old kid, and you've got a beach vacation with your family. And you've been looking forward to it for weeks because you love the beach and you've been thinking nonstop about the sandcastle that you're going to build on the beach. And so you bring all your tools, your shovel, your spade, your, your molds, and you get out there and you spend hours and you're working on the perfect sandcastle and you build your tower here and tower there and you dig your little moat. You've got some rubber ducky friends who are guarding the castle. And then all of a sudden, it's been a couple hours, so you get kind of thirsty. And you tell your younger sibling, four or five-year-old, I I'm I'm just need a drink. I've worked very hard on this. I'm going to go see mom and dad and get some goldfish and a sip of water, and I want you to just guard the sandcastle with me for me for like 30 seconds. And you go and get your drink and your goldfish, and you come back, and your, your little sister or brother has just ransacked your sandcastle. You would be so angry. You'd be devastated. You might even curse them like Paul wants to do to the false teachers. Or more seriously, imagine if you leave your kids with a babysitter. And you come home and you find the babysitter just being mean, being a bully and mistreating your kids. You'd be rightfully, justly angry. I, I thought about this week. You know, we've spent, we, we officially started this church a little over a year ago, but, but many of us over two years ago now were meeting and praying. And I imagine what if we spent five or 10 years here and then God called me somewhere else. And after like a year, I come back to visit and there's some guy up here preaching a false gospel and ruining the work that we, we put in. I would be so angry. I would be calling the pastors of the church and saying, fire this guy. What are, what are you doing? Why are you putting up with this? That's how angry Paul is about this false gospel. Now, in the Galatian context, who are the troublemakers, and how are they turning the gospel inside out? Um, I do apologize. I'm continuing to mess with this. We just got a replacement mic in this week, and it doesn't have a little clip to the back of my shirt, so that's why I keep reaching up to my face if it's distracting you. Uh, in the Galatian context, who are the troublemakers and how are they turning the gospel inside out? The, the technical name for them is the Judaizers. Uh, it's a big word. The word itself doesn't really matter. But basically, these are, are ethnically Jewish Christians who are being discipled by apostles. There are other apostles. Paul's not the only one. They're being discipled by the apostles in Jerusalem. And the Jewish believers there had accepted the gospel. They believed the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, but they were still obeying the Jewish law. Why? Not because it contributed to their salvation, but because they were Jewish. And they continued to be Jewish, even after they became Christians. And that was just fine, because the gospel wasn't faith in Jesus plus the law. It was just like, you can obey the law if you want to. But these Judaizers didn't understand this. They began to think that obeying the law was essential for salvation, for Jews and for non-Jews. So they come to Galatia, which is a, a context where Christians are not Jewish. They're, they're Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And they begin telling the, the Gentile Galatian Christians, you have to obey the law. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be accepted by God, if you want to be accepted by us, you have to be obedient to the law. Faith alone in Jesus will not save you. And obviously, this makes Paul irate. He calls them troublemakers. Why, why, why is this problematic? What's wrong with this? Because basically they were saying, you must have faith in Jesus plus some other stuff. You must have faith in Jesus plus you must obey the law plus you must do the works. But the problem that Paul is going to show us is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And these troublemakers were 
adding. They were saying Jesus plus something. And, and why does this matter? We don't have any Judaizers in our church. It matters because the same distortion continues to happen today, but in new ways. This same distortion has continued for 2,000 years in church history. Just think of two broad categories in which it happens today, two kind of what we think of as polar opposites. On the one hand, fundamentalist Christianity, but on the other hand, progressive Christianity. Fundamentalism is a word that um, if, you, if you approach me with a cup of coffee downstairs, I'll tell you why I think that everybody uses this word wrongly, but I'm just going to use it the way that everybody uses it now. That's a, a conversation for another time. But when we hear fundamentalism, what do we think of? We think of uber conservative, very moralistic, you must follow all the rules Christianity. So it's not enough to have faith in Jesus. You must regularly attend church. You must follow certain rules of personal morality. You, you can't drink. You may, maybe, you know, in previous days, you can't dance, you can't play cards. Uh, you, you probably must vote Republican in most contexts. And if you don't, what, we'll judge you, we'll look down on you, we'll hold you at arm's length, we won't accept you as a full part of this community, and we might call into question your Christianity, right? There's no way she's a Christian. Did you see what she was wearing last week? There's no way he's a Christian. Did you see the, the, the politician sign in his front yard? On the other hand, you have progressive Christianity, which is just a mirror opposite of fundamentalism. It adds rules and laws to, to the gospel just like fundamentalism does. It's just the opposite rules. So you must what? You must have faith in Jesus, but also you must be on the right side of history. You must follow certain rules, not of personal morality, but of social justice. You must affirm people in their self-expression. You must not vote Republican. And if you don't do these things, we'll judge you, we'll look down on you, and we'll call into question whether you're really a Christian. And for what it's worth, just as an aside, in our sort of southern context, where in the last several years, many people have talked about sort of the process of deconstructing their faith, I found it interesting that a lot of people who grew up in sort of fundamentalist environments are deconstructing their faith, but they're just replacing it with a mirror opposite on the other side. They're not removing all the legalistic add-ons to the gospel. They're just replacing them with other legalistic add-ons to the gospel. And these gospel distortions, these ways of turning the gospel inside out in Galatia and in fundamentalist churches and in progressive Christianity, they all create an impossibly heavy burden. They put an impossibly heavy burden on people. They create unbelievable pressure and anxiety. And our culture is awash in pressure and anxiety. The pressure and the burden added by distorted gospels is the pressure of self-justification. That sounds like a big phrase. It's one that we're going to come back to over and over again in Galatians. Justification is a legal term. It means to be declared in the right, to be declared just good, innocent, in a court of law. So it's a legal term, but it's also an incredibly practical term because you and I, every single day, are trying to justify ourselves in the court of public opinion, in the court of a boss or coworker or friend, in the court of parents, court of spouses or potential spouses, in the court of our children, we're trying to justify ourselves in the court of our own opinion about ourselves, our own thoughts and our own feelings. We all operate with this deeply ingrained belief that we must be accepted and affirmed and applauded both by ourselves and by the world and by God himself and that it's totally up to us to accomplish it. 
We have to find this acceptance. We have to find this affirmation. And it's totally up to us to accomplish it. And that weight is absolutely crushing. It's crushing. And by the way, I, I think that this constant effort towards self-justification explains a lot about the sort of movements that arise in our society over the last several years. Consider the rise of the, the self-help industry. The self-help industry is all about helping you justify yourself before other people, right? By becoming successful. So it says you can justify yourself in the court of human opinion. You can be successful, and you can do it in three easy steps if you buy my book for $14.99. But, but it doesn't work, right? Like people tried it. They bought the book, and they went to the weekend seminar, and they hired the life coach, and their lives are still just as disappointing and unsuccessful as they were before. And so that led to the replacement of self-help with what? In more recent years, with the rise of the therapeutic. Now, I want to be clear. I have to caveat this every time I say something like this. A lot of therapy is good and helpful. So I'm not commenting on good and helpful therapy. But the, the sort of therapeutic industry at, at a sort of popular level often seems to be saying the self-help thing didn't work. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't get the, the justification that you wanted from other people. That's okay. Just give it to yourself. You don't need to be justified by your parents. You don't need to be justified by your religious upbringing. You don't need to be justified by your coworkers. You can just justify yourself. And if you keep coming back to me, I'll keep telling you that every week for the rest of your life. But the problem is this doesn't work either. Why? Because the court of your own opinion is just as fickle as the court of public opinion. You can't justify yourself any more than, than you can justify yourself in front of other people. Your flaws and your failures and your brokenness and your weakness, you can't escape them. They're always going to be right in front of your face saying, how dare you justify yourself when we're still here? So we need something else. The gospel that Paul preaches in Galatians offers something radically different than anything else in human history. It offers something radically new and different and unique. And it comes in and says, you can't justify yourself. And you can't, you can't be justified in the court of public opinion, but there is somebody who can justify you. And Paul talks about this actually in another letter. In 1 Corinthians, there's, there's some debate uh, in the church in Corinth about whether they should accept Paul. And he basically tells them, I don't care if you accept me or not. He says, I, your, your opinion of me, does, you're not my judge. It doesn't validate me one way or another. And then you think he's going to turn around and say, you know what, I can justify myself. Like, I don't care what you think about me. I have a clear conscience, so I'm good. But then he turns right back around and he says, I have a clear conscience, but that doesn't justify me either. Your opinion of me doesn't matter, and my opinion of me doesn't matter. God's opinion of me matters. And he has justified me through Jesus Christ. The pressure of having to justify yourself all the time is absolutely unbearable, but the gospel relieves all of it. The, the weight, the pressure of having to justify yourself before others or before yourself is unbearable, but the gospel lifts a million burdens. You don't have to carry them anymore. You, you don't have to bear that weight. And this radically changes your life, not just spiritually, not just in the future, but like right now, if this is true, if you believe you can't justify me, I can't justify me, but God has justified me, it changes everything about your life. Consider, as we close, some of the ways that the gospel changes our lives. First, you can stop trying to persuade God. Now, that, that may sound like an interesting phrase, but Paul, in verse 10, 
uses two words uh, that I, there are different translations translate them differently. I think here the Christian Standard Bible, which I read from, does the best job of translating it because they're, they're two very different verbs. One is persuade and one is please. And the word persuade in the Bible never has God as the subject. So you're never supposed to try to persuade God, but the word please often has God as the subject. So it's a good thing to try to please God. And Paul's asking these two rhetorical questions, and he's basically saying, I'm not trying to persuade God. I'm trying to persuade people. I'm trying to please God. And those are two very different things. So first, you can stop trying to persuade God. Self-justification is just an attempt to persuade God, by which I mean to convince him to accept you. Here are my good works, God. Here's all my service at church. Here's the way I love people. Here's how I'm on the right side of history. Will you accept me? And Paul's saying, you don't have to do that anymore. And instead, you can begin living simply to please God. That's very different. Uh, Think of a a marriage illustration. If I'm constantly doing stuff for Lindsay, trying to serve her, trying to help her, trying to, to give her opportunities to go have fun in order to keep her off my back, or in order to, to, to placate her or, or you know, just try to earn her affection, that's a sign of a very unhealthy marriage, right? But if I'm constantly serving her because it just makes me happy to see her happy, that's a sign of love and a really healthy marriage. And Paul's saying the same is true about our relationship with God. You can stop trying to persuade God and begin to obey him for no reason other than that you love him and want to please him. And I I would just suggest to you that if you've never had the experience of obeying God just to try to please him, just because you think it makes him happy, you're probably not a Christian. If you've never obeyed God purely because you love him and want to see him pleased, you're probably not a Christian. And to be clear, you could give every outward sign of being a Christian. You could wake up every morning and read your Bible and pray. You could go to church every single week. You could serve at church. You could be a leader in this church. And if you're doing all of it to to persuade God, to convince him to accept you, to keep him off your back, if you're doing it just because you think that's what you need to do to be a good moral person, you're not a Christian. If you're doing it to please God, that's something different. If you do these things to try to persuade God, then the gospel has not gotten a hold of you yet. And that, that is an intentional way of putting it. Because as you know, if you're a Christian, it's not like you got a hold of the gospel. The gospel got a hold of you. You did, you did not sit back in a sort of totally dispassionate, objective way and say, I'm going to consider all the options, and I've landed on Christianity, and now I'm accepting the gospel, and so I'm a Christian now. That may have been a part of your process. You may have objectively considered the options. But at some point, something happened, and it, it began to feel like something was making the decisions for you. Right? Like you weren't interacting with just a set of ideas, but with a force or a power or a divine person. The gospel gets a hold of us. This is what happened, again, to Luther. Martin Luther, before the Protestant Reformation, he was a very devoted Roman Catholic monk. And he later confessed that when I was a monk, I hated God. He said I didn't love him, I hated him because I was terrified of him. And I thought that I had to work really hard all the time to keep him off my back. And then all of a sudden I discovered I don't have to persuade him anymore because he already loves me. And he did everything that needed to happen in his son, Christ, to bring me into himself. It's what happened with Wesley. Again, a minister in the Anglican church, but when he heard Galatians, his heart was strangely warmed. And he began to do things to please God. 
The third thing that <clears throat> changes in our lives when the gospel gets a hold of us is you don't have to be a slave to people-pleasing anymore. Because who cares? Like that, that's what Paul says, right? What motivates people-pleasing? It's the belief that in order to have a good and happy life, other people have to approve of us. But Paul says, you're not justified by them. You don't want to be a jerk, like you should be kind to people, but who cares if they don't approve of you? You have the approval of the person whose approval matters infinitely more than everybody else in the world put together. You're good. You don't have to be a people pleaser anymore. Fourth thing that happens when the gospel gets a hold of us is you, you start trying to persuade people. This is what Paul says. I'm not trying to persuade God. I'm trying to persuade people. When, when the gospel has gotten a hold of you, you want to see it get a hold of other people. Because you know I've had a million pounds lifted off of me. I want that to happen for other people as well. And the last thing I'll mention today that happens when the gospel gets a hold of you. <clears throat> you can begin to be honest with yourself. You can begin to look in the mirror and, and take an honest look at yourself. The pressure of self-justification prevents us from being honest with ourselves. Because it's just way too painful. It's just way too painful to, to seriously consider and reckon how broken we are and how sinful we are. And so we do what? Instead, we, we get really, really defensive, right? And so anytime anybody close to you suggests that there may be something you're doing wrong or that there may be something wrong with you, it's knives out. You do everything you can to defend yourself because you can't stand to think that they might be right. When we're trying to justify ourselves, we defend ourselves or in the other direction, we turn really critical and judgmental of other people. Why? Because if I can tell myself about all these things that they do wrong all the time and how I'm so much better than them, I can feel better about myself. Or, instead of either strategy, we just totally distract ourselves from all our flaws and failures. We spend our lives looking at screens and drinking a little too much and pretending that we don't feel what we really feel beneath the surface. But once the gospel gets a hold of you, you see that salvation is by faith alone because, among other reasons, you don't have anything else to contribute. <laughs> you can be honest with yourself and look in the mirror and realize that the Bible is true when it says even our good deeds are like filthy rags. We don't have anything to offer. And what I find is that in that, in that truth, you have this paradox that is, it contains both the radical offense of the gospel and the radical freedom of the gospel. In the very same truth, you have this radically offensive reality that you are not good enough to contribute anything to your salvation. That's radically offensive. But then the gospel comes right in on the heels of that and says, but you don't have to because God loves you so much that he paid an infinite price to do it for you. He was willing to do everything necessary to save you and it cost him everything and it costs you absolutely nothing. If we can get over the offense, we can get to the radical freedom that the gospel provides. To, to borrow a metaphor that one author used <clears throat> of another doctrine in Christianity, it's, it, it's kind of this truth that you're not good enough to contribute anything to your salvation, but God has done everything for you. It's kind of like you imagine you're walking down the street one day. This is kind of a weird metaphor. And all of a sudden, there's a big fruit delivery truck driving by, and it hits you. You're walking down the road, and you just hit, get hit by this huge fruit truck. And he says, if you survive, like, it might kill you. The offense might be too great for you to ever get back up. But if it doesn't kill you, you spend the rest of your life just, like, bathing in the most delicious fruit imaginable and eating and 
drinking in the sweetness and the joy and the goodness and the beauty for the rest of your life. If we can get over the offense that we provide nothing to our salvation, it becomes the sweetest truth in the world that God has provided all of it. As one old preacher said of the gospel in the book of Galatians, all you need is nothing. All you need is nothing to receive the gospel. But he said, most people don't have it. Do you have it? Father, we thank you. Because maybe in this moment we can be honest enough with ourselves to know that we have nothing to contribute, but that you have contributed everything. Thank you for Jesus who gave himself to rescue us. We pray this in his name. Amen.